0: Welcome to Write on Prime, the May 2022 edition. I'm Heidi James, and as per usual, I'm joined by my good friend, Vanessa Cardi. Good to see you, Vanessa. Good to see you too, Heidi. Nice to be sitting across this virtual table from you. How is life in your world? Things are going really well, Vanessa. Um, It's a beautiful time of year here, and clinical practice has been throwing some really interesting cases my way, as it has been you as well. I hear you have a case you want to talk about.
1: I certainly do, but this isn't going to be like some earth-shattering discussion about some weird and wonderful disease. But I thought it was time that we reviewed female stress incontinence.
0: Let's chat about it, because it really is bread and butter family medicine, and it's good for all of us to have an approach to it and to know about the different treatment modalities, because our patients
1: certainly come in having done their own research for the most part. Yeah, so let me tell you about this patient I saw last week. She is a 74-year-old female who had a history of diabetes, hypertension, peripheral vascular disease, and osteoarthritis of the knees. She had four children and, according to her chart, had been moderately obese since her early 30s. She had recently spoken to another doctor in my practice group during a telehealth appointment, and during the review of systems, the patient had mentioned she was frequently incontinent of urine. My colleague had flagged this and asked the patient to make an appointment for an in-person visit. Well, between reading the chart and asking the patient some more questions, I was able to tease out a few details. Ever since the birth of her third child, 50 years ago, whenever she coughed or sneezed or laughed, a small amount of urine would leak out. During her fourth pregnancy, it got a lot worse in that more volume would leak out, but then after that delivery, which ended up being a C-section, it kind of went back to her previous baseline. And that was all well and good until about 5-10 years ago, when it really started to get worse again. Now the volumes that leaked were larger, but the leaking was also happening more frequently with less provocation. Even the slightest Valsalva maneuver would bring on some incontinence, to the point where she is now getting scared to leave the house due to embarrassment.
0: Yeah, that sadly is a classic story. Was there anything that had you concerned that there might be another
1: etiology going on? That's a good question, but I did a sort of review of systems again. She had no symptoms of urinary tract infection. She wasn't constipated, and aside from the weight gain that I mentioned in those previous five years, she hadn't really noticed anything unusual in her health. She hadn't had any neuromuscular damage from strokes or trauma, and she hadn't undergone any pelvic surgeries except for that one C-section about 50 years ago. Also, her diabetes was well-controlled, and she was compliant with her medications.
0: I have a quick question for you. I know so much of what we do in family medicine is wanting to be mindful of how conditions impact a patient's function. So did you go into more details about how this was impacting her life? You already mentioned that she was embarrassed to go out, but perhaps she was a homebody already and this didn't really bother her?
1: Excellent question, Heidi, and I think this is something that we too often overlook. She was actually very open about this, which certainly isn't always the case, and she volunteered about how narrow her life had become because of the incontinence. She used to be part of a daily walking club, as well as being very social, and driving around to visit friends to play Scrabble and Bingo. But now she was scared to go for walks because it was so uncomfortable when there was leaking, and she was declining social invitations out of fear that she would have a major urine leak while out of her house.
0: So assuming the physical exam was normal and didn't show any concerns, what was your working diagnosis
1: here? Well, first off, we needed to identify the problem definitively, and a key part of that diagnostic process is ruling out other issues. We screened for UTI symptoms, like I mentioned, and we, of course, did a urinalysis and culture just to be sure that she didn't have a grumbling urinary tract infection. It would be unusual to have an infection lasting that long, but again, we want to be thorough. We checked about her bowel movements, and she wasn't constipated, so I wasn't worried about a physical obstruction that would then lead to overflow incontinence. And she didn't describe any episodes of incontinence where she knew she needed to void, but just couldn't make it to the bathroom in time, so there was no sense of urge incontinence. And this was all coming together and really looking like stress incontinence. Most of these cases come from hypermobility of the urethra, but with a few more rare cases, it can actually be from sphincter dysfunction. But based on her story, my money was on the urethral hypermobility. And I don't always think to make that distinction, Vanessa, between the
0: urethral hypermobility and sphincter dysfunction, but it is a rather important distinction to make because sphincter dysfunction is more linked to neurological problems. So it sounds like this lady definitely had a classic presentation. And as you mentioned, you'd ruled out all the other things that it could be. So what did you do for her? And extrapolating from her case, what can we do in general for our patients who have this problem? Because there certainly are a lot of them.
1: Well, the first thing I did was try to get a sense of how often this was happening. She had already brought in a symptom diary of sorts, and it was clear from this that the incontinence was happening several times a day. And I mentioned already, it has been going on for years. She was using her daughter's menstrual pads as she lived in a very small town where she knew everybody, and she was far too embarrassed to buy adult diapers or incontinence pads because of this. But she was getting dermatitis now in her genital region from the constant exposure to the urine-soaked pads, so this was really affecting her quality of life as well. And that highlights a really important point about incontinence, the degree of
0: shame that people feel related to this problem, and couple that with living in a small town where everyone is in each other's business, and it's enough to push people like this woman further into the shadows.
1: Were you able to offer any hope to this patient, any plans for treatment? For sure, and luckily there are a number of approaches available to us. Of course, we always like to start with the more straightforward things, and while weight loss and exercise might be the obvious ones to focus on, they aren't the only ones. We can also look at smoking cessation if the patient smokes cigarettes and decreasing the intake of caffeinated beverages as well because these can have an impact on incontinence. Encouraging your patient to void frequently might also decrease the amount of urine volume that can leak out at those inopportune moments.
0: Sorry to diverge from your train of thought here for a sec, but just bear with me because as you're talking, it's making me think about post-void residuals. Is this something that we should be automatically doing with a bladder scan if we suspect stress incontinence?
1: Not necessarily. According to the American Neurological Association, a PVR, or post residual, or urodynamic studies can certainly be helpful if your patient is pursuing surgical options for their incontinence. But this can be a clinical diagnosis if they're not going to the surgical route, and it does not depend on imaging.
0: Perfect. Okay. What were the next steps you discussed with her? Because weight loss is not easy and definitely does not kick in right away. Well, my
1: next go-to therapy are the Kegels. Those are the exercises for the pelvic floor that a patient can literally do anytime and anywhere, and they can certainly help with stress incontinence. They consist of sets of contracting, holding, and releasing the pelvic floor muscles. If your patient can't quite visualize how to do this, get them to practice doing this while they are peeing. While they're peeing, tell them to squeeze the muscles that would make them stop peeing. That feeling of contraction is the one they are looking for when they do the Kegels.
0: How long do they do this for and how many times per day? How many sets? How many reps?
1: I usually go with three times a day is what I tell my patients. And each time they need to do three sets of 10 contractions, holding each contraction for 10 seconds. If you go online, there are lots of guided descriptions on how to do these or how to mix up the routine, so to speak. So yay for the Internet. And if these Kegels aren't cutting it, what's next? Next up are the Europhysios or Europhysical therapists. These are not available everywhere, but trust me, if there is one in your practice location, be sure to use them. I tend to refer all of my stress incontinence patients to them and have them do Kegels while waiting for their first appointment because these specially trained physical therapists are so good. They provide guidance for the pelvic floor exercises, and they also have things like vaginal weights and biofeedback machines that further improve a patient's response. Patients literally rave about their results with these special physical therapists. Of course, if these interventions do not work, or do not work well enough for a patient, then a pessary could be considered. Some patients are very leery about leaving something in place in their vagina, and many older women find it difficult to use them if they have issues with mobility or flexibility. But in some cases, the pessary can be cleaned and changed every few weeks at the doctor's office, and the patient doesn't have to worry about it if that's their only option.
0: And of course, there are some surgical options as well, Vanessa.
1: There certainly are, but these are by no means first line, and more investigations need to be done before we'll consider surgery to fix the urethral hypermobility. That is a topic for another day, as there has been a fair amount of controversy out there with vaginal mesh and uterine slings, so um, we could talk about that some other time. But just know that surgery is an option. How about meds? Are there any options? Not really. I mean, some people throw about duloxetine as an option, but according to studies, it doesn't do much for stress incontinence. These patients don't have an overactive bladder or a distended bladder, unless they have a mixed picture, I guess. But if they're pure stress incontinence, that's not really what they're dealing with. They are leaking urine when their intra-abdominal pressure increases suddenly. I guess you could ask them to sneeze or laugh less. But a cheerier <laughs> and more sustainable treatment would be to do Kegels and follow the urophysio.
0: I will take a pelvic floor physio and Kegels any day over a medication that may or may not work. I really hope that the kegels and/or the pelvic floor physio is really helpful for your patient, but d- do you really think they're going to work?:
1: Unfortunately, she probably won't be cured, but hopefully we can get the episodes of incontinence to decrease in frequency and in volume of urine that is leaked, because that could really impact her quality of life. I also forgot to mention that we should encourage our patients to use incontinence pads or diapers because they are actually designed to deal with urine. Menstrual pads do a good job at locking away blood, but not urine, so the patient might be dealing with further. GU-related concerns when she gets a dermatitis in her genital region. And that could then complicate the whole process.
0: Well, listen, Vanessa, this is a really helpful case, a a good overview of a common problem that we see the patient with stress incontinence. And it's a good reminder that we do the basics. We do a history. We do a physical. We rule out things like infection and neuromuscular disease. And then we move on to management, which can include weight loss, Kegels, urophysio, pessary surgeries. And possibly medication, but the big thing is we need to remember as this patient's primary care provider that we have to worry about the whole person, and we do need to address the psychosocial impact of this
1: condition. Couldn't have said it better myself, Heidi. All right, now moving on to the rest of the show... What do we have to look forward to? Let's see. While you and Hobie are chatting about how to remove someone from your practice's patient roster, and then on The Generalist, Casey Parker joins us to discuss the use of POCUS for diagnosing gallstones.
0: For our office medicine piece, Penny Wilson joins me for a talk about contraception. We review how to choose the best oral contraceptive pill for your patient. And while on Rural Med, you tell a story about a globe rupture. Not the world rupturing, (laughs) but rather the eyeball. Blah.
1: So sit back and relax, and we will join you on the other side for the summary. Take it away, right on Prime, May 2022.
2: Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee.
3: Okay, Heidi, it's nice to see you again. You as well, sir. So. Our topic this month is a little more serious, maybe not a lot of evidence exists for, but one I think is kind of important. And I think that we all have either thought about or kind of unfortunately experienced.
0: Yeah, this is a tough one, Hobie.
3: Yeah, so let's talk about physician termination or what's more commonly and colloquially known as divorcing a patient.
0: And for the sake of our patients and confidentiality, We're not going to share any stories here, even though I know for a fact that you and I um, have experience with this. But I think when we all think about this, there's a prototypical patient that pops into our heads when we hear the
3: term divorcing a patient. Yeah, well, certainly for me, it does. Uh, I think about a type of patient I might relate to. But as I researched this topic, you know, that stereotype was validated. But I, I think I learned a few things that are worth sharing with our listeners. Okay, then let's
0: start with the data. Are there any articles that talk
3: about this topic? Yeah, so probably as our listeners have guessed, there's not a lot on this topic, but there are a few articles, one from 2008 in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, where 85% of PCPs had terminated a patient from their practice, with 71% having terminated less than 10 patients total from their practice over time. And the top reasons for termination were verbal abuse, opioid seeking, missed appointments, and non-payment.
0: That's surprising to me that 29% have dismissed
3: more than 10 patients. Well, and the range was 11 to 200. So I don't know who's dismissed 200 patients from their practice, but clearly there is some variation on the higher end there.
0: Wow. All right. So what are some of the guiding principles here, Hobie?
3: Yeah. So I think first and foremost, we should say we are family physicians. We love our patients and we want to work with everyone wherever they're at, even if the doctor-patient relationship isn't perfect all the time. And I would argue, in fact, I chose family medicine because I thought it was the specialty that valued the doctor-patient relationship more than any other specialty.
0: Yeah, it is truly at the heart of family medicine. And I've heard people use like terms they'd use to describe uh, a marriage with reference to their patients. And I always joke that my practice, not necessarily joke, but I always say that my practice is my other significant other. Yeah, it's a really unique relationship, and trust is really, really important. And when we say divorcing, like that really shows how important the relationship is. So terminating the doctor-patient relationship really would be the last resort, just like a divorce would be in a marriage. But after taking a step back and trying to work on trust and communication, if we reach that last resort with a patient, what are some of the reasons we might consider a termination of A patient-physician relationship.
3: I'm not sure if there are absolutes here, but some things to consider would be verbal abuse, the threat of violence, brandishing a weapon, inappropriate conduct like sexual behavior towards a doctor or staff, drug diversion or theft, double doctoring.
0: That's when a patient is seen two physicians simultaneously, like has two primary care providers.
3: Yes. And then there are other issues like non-payment for services, treatment, non-adherence, or repeated cancellations, or the patient needing services beyond your scope of practice or expertise where termination might be considered, but aren't really absolute reasons to terminate a patient.
1: Now,
0: are there any special exceptions we should think about when it comes to terminating a
3: doctor-patient relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So if a patient is in the middle of a diagnostic workup or needs like acute care, like post-operative checks, or early in pregnancy, right, where there just needs a lot of of care, you should probably wait until those things have resolved. Also, if you're in a rural area and you're the only provider, you might not be able to end that relationship because there really is no other reasonable place for your patient to seek care. And then finally, you might have to check with that patient's insurance company as a lot of patients are kind of locked into assigned providers or health systems, which prevent the patient from switching PCPs for up to maybe 90 days. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's also worth mentioning that as telehealth becomes more popular with PCPs, it's important to clarify whether you will be doing telehealth as part of an ongoing patient-physician relationship with a patient, or if you're only going to be doing telehealth in a more urgent care setting with no expectation of continuity of care, like seeing them as a one-off rather than as a promise of further care.
3: And then I would say another special circumstance to think about is involving patients who are taking controlled substances. So I think in situations where you're concerned about abuse or diversion, you might decide to refer that patient to a specialist, like pain management or addictions, and continue to provide care without providing controlled substances.
0: And that's often a nice option for these patients because the addiction If it interferes with the patient-physician relationship that you have with them, if that can be managed by somebody else, then you're able to continue providing care for all the other things they need. I think it's important for us to mention here that there are circumstances that, you know, we can't discriminate and dismiss a patient based on, right? There are things that we would be very wrong to dismiss a patient based on them, and they are race, uh, national origin, sex, disability, age, sexual orientation, and language proficiency. You have to remember those are not appropriate reasons to dismiss a patient unless you want to be a complete jerk and get reported
3: (laughs) and get in trouble. Yes, and get sued. Yes, that's right. I think we should also clarify that we're talking about ambulatory office-based care for our patients here. Hospitals and emergency departments have different rules which govern the care of patients, including the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, or EMTALA, which mandates that patients need to be seen and stabilized before a transfer could be considered.
0: Now, how do we go about terminating the patient relationship? There's a few things to consider. You should give the patient advanced written notice in a formal way, like a certified letter, and that should include the effective termination date. And it should also include what kind of continued care you will provide during the transition, like a medication refills or emergency care. How the patient can access their records and how they can contact their insurance to find a new primary care provider or maybe providing a list of local providers that they could contact. And this would be a way to prove that you are not abandoning your patient because abandoning patients
3: is very much frowned upon. And illegal, depending on what state or province you work in. How do you feel about including the reason for termination in that official letter?
0: That's interesting. I would hope that there have been conversations that happened before the letter that explained the situation to the patient and what was going on. But in general, it's a controversial topic, whether we should let the patient know the reason of termination. Some experts say we should include it and others say not to. So it's important to work with your HR team and legal team to find out what they recommend. Also, contacting your college of physicians would be helpful here too, your state regulatory
3: bodies. Yeah. So there are patient abandonment laws that prevent patients from being terminated immediately. And these usually allow for transitions of at least 30 days for continued care while the patient finds a new primary care physician. But again, our listeners should check with their local. Legal team and their HR team, or even their state and provincial medical associations for specifics on their local practice region.
0: We should remember to contact our malpractice carrier too and contact them early on in the process to make sure we're doing things correctly and professionally in accordance with the law. And I'm appreciating these recommendations to connect with people outside the situation because I have, like, just speaking personally, I found these to be very emotional and difficult processes when like to the point where I may not be functioning at my best and without outside guidance, I may handle these things in ways that are inappropriate or not in my best interest or the patient's best interest. So it's extra important to seek outside guidance here.
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's the reason why you're a great family doctor, right? You are emotionally invested in the success of your patients, right? And when that relationship doesn't work well, It's hard to be objective about what's happening.
0: Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. And we have to remember that we don't practice alone. We have a team with us. We have a staff that are invested in these patients as well. And we need to let them know what's happening with the patient who's in the process of being terminated. They are the frontward facing part of the office and they're the ones who will be interacting with them. Often it's the staff who are the ones who are experiencing this bad behavior. So it may come as no surprise that you're working through termination. And if they don't know that you're pursuing termination, they may also feel unsupported and you don't want to lose good staff.
3: 100%. And if you have terminated them and the staff doesn't know and they continue to take calls or make appointments for that patient or do continuity of care actions for them, it's very confusing and sort of ultimately detrimental to the dismissal process. So. I think it's really tough, but I think this is a great reminder to reach out to your clinical team, to review your dismissal policy, and if you find that your clinic doesn't have one, maybe it's time to make one, to outline and say, this is a rare and hard circumstance, but we all want to make sure we're on the same page if we ever need to do this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a tough situation, Hobie, that none of us want to be in, like either for ourselves or certainly not for our patients. But the reality is that it happens no matter how good a physician you are or how hard you try to maintain that patient-physician relationship. But thankfully, it is something that happens rarely.
3: Yeah. And I would say in the beginning of our conversation, we noted the lack of evidence or even scholarship around this topic. But for those who might be interested in getting some more information, the AAFP FPM Journal has a great article from 2005, which includes some suggested algorithms on how to handle these situations. So I would encourage our listeners to maybe look that up to get some more information around this topic.
0: Okay, Hobie, thank you for being willing to bring up this uh, sober topic and helping us to walk through it.
3: Yeah, it's a tough one, but hopefully not one that we have to deal with a lot. Hopefully this provides some review and framework for our listeners to have to work through this. And in rare cases, they have to do so.
4: Old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, three thousand grams of Solmedrol. Staff. What are you, MacGyver? No,
5: I'm the generalist.
1: We are back with another point of care ultrasound in the primary care office, and I'm joined once again by Casey Parker. How are you doing, Casey?
5: I'm doing great, Vanessa. Always keen to talk about ultrasound. Excellent.
1: Well, this is a great topic because. Patients presenting to the primary care office with upper abdominal pain is extremely common. There is a broad differential diagnosis to consider as well. And of course, one of the key considerations is gallbladder disease. Biliary colic is very common, and we can usually pick this up clinically. However, acute cholecystitis is a more serious problem that we really, really do not want to miss.
5: Yeah, Vanessa, abdominal ultrasound is the best way to look at the gallbladder, and to exclude gallstone disease, as a cause of their pain. However, sometimes it's just not so simple.
1: Because of course the problem is that many patients will have asymptomatic gallstones, and therefore we may end up with an innocent stone which can distract us from another important
5: diagnosis.: That’s right, biliary ultrasound is something that most point-of- care clinicians can do, but beware that it starts out really simple and become pretty complicated very quickly. Therefore, it’s important for us to make sure that we are asking the right questions when we're doing this scan in the office.
1: Okay, so how do we actually do this scan?
5: Well, the best probe to use will be the curvilinear abdominal probe, and use the abdominal preset. The gallbladder can be quite variable in location and appearance, so you need the patient to help you out with this one. You need to scan in the sagittal plane, I usually start in the midline, and then move out along the right costal margin. In most patients, it is very helpful to get them to take in a deep breath and hold it. This brings the liver down and opens a nice acoustic window through which you can see the gallbladder.
1: So apart from taking a deep breath and holding it, are there any other tips for finding the gallbladder?
5: Yeah, in a lot of cases it's necessary to roll the patient into the left lateral decubitus position to view the gallbladder. And there are some folk where even a combination of deep breath holding and the lateral decubitus position is just not enough.
1: And so what do we do if our view is completely obscured by, say, bowel gas? Well, fasting is useful if you have the time. But this is not typically an option in the primary care office or in the emergency department setting because usually they're coming in to see you for this problem and you haven't warned them ahead of time.
5: That's right. So if you really can't see anything because of bowel gas, the other trick is to try an intercostal approach. Basically, you scan the gallbladder from the right lateral chest wall, trying to pick between the ribs. If you line the probe up correctly, you can usually see the gallbladder.
1: And we also need to be aware that the duodenum and the colon can mimic the gallbladder in the right upper quadrant. So before you proceed, just make sure that it's the gallbladder that you're looking at.
5: That's right. Can be tricky. Once you've identified that this is in fact the gallbladder, you want to make sure that you've seen it completely. So we normally look at the fundus, the midbody, but the most crucial part is to be able to see right down at the neck of the gallbladder, where it sort of tapers down into the spiral valves. This is where any really important stones will be hiding. So symptomatic gallstones in the neck of the gallbladder are the ones that we really care about and they can be really subtle to spot in some patients.
1: So you need to be really thorough and make sure that you get a good look at the neck of the gallbladder where it becomes narrow and joins a cystic duct. Okay, got it. Now, you mentioned that there are a few important key questions to ask when scanning gallbladders. These are... Number one. Are there any gallstones present?
5: Yep, if there are no gallstones present in the primary care setting, then that effectively excludes gallstone disease. Although it is possible to have a thing called calculus cholecystatus, This is really rare, and it's easy to pick because these patients look terrible. They are super sick folk, usually in the emergency department.
2: Number two.
1: If there are gallstones, then the question becomes, are they actually causing any problems? We know that nearly half of middle-aged women have stones, for example, and most of these are going to be asymptomatic. So Casey, how do we know if a stone is impacted? Because that's the ones we're worried about.
5: Yeah, so if you've seen a gallstone that's sitting in the neck, the trick is to roll the patient into the left lateral position. And then watch that stone and see if it falls out of the neck down into the fundus. If it doesn't move, then that is probably a true symptomatic stone.
1: Now an obstructing stone will usually result in dilation of the gallbladder over time. So if the gallbladder seems really, really big, that can also help, right?
5: Yeah, you can measure the gallbladder in the transverse diameter. Anything over about four centimeters is considered to be big. Number three.
1: Now, question number three, if we're thinking about acute cholecystitis due to an impacted stone, what do we need to look for then?
5: Yeah, so the signs we look for for cholecystitis include thickening of the gallbladder wall. You want to measure it at the closest part, so the anterior wall of the gallbladder, and anything over about three millimeters is considered thick.
1: Of course, there are other causes for a thickened gallbladder wall as well, right? But if you have an obstructing stone, then a thick wall is a fair sign for cholecystitis.
5: That's true. Now, the next trick we use is we use the probe to elucidate a sonographic Murphy's sign. Just like you do with your hand when you're clinically examining, you place the probe over the fundus of the gallbladder and you push and you see if you can elucidate some tenderness.
1: Yeah, because of course you want to make sure that the focus of tenderness is over the gallbladder more than elsewhere in the epigastrium because that could be leading you down the wrong path otherwise.
5: That's true. And then lastly, we want to look for fluid around the gallbladder, which is a sign of local inflammation. So you may see some pericholecystic fluid or you may see some increased vascular flow if you turn on the color Doppler. These are signs of inflammation of the gallbladder itself.
1: So a dilated, tender gallbladder with a thick wall and evidence of local inflammation is probably true cholecystitis.
5: That's right, Vanessa. If all of the signs line up, then that's a clear call for cholecystitis. But sometimes we don't get that full house, and it really comes back to clinical signs. You look at the blood work, and you use your experience to determine who is actually sick and who just has a bit of biliary colic.
1: So what do we do if there are stones in the gallbladder but no clear signs of a cholecystitis?
5: So if we see mobile gallstones, i.e. those that aren't impacted, and there are no other features of gallbladder inflammation, then it's likely that we're looking at asymptomatic stones or possibly we're seeing a patient that's having intermittent biliary colic and that stone's just not in the neck at the moment. If the history matches, then that's probably a diagnosis. Once again, the history is always the most important piece of information when scanning.
1: However, if there are no stones and none of these features on the ultrasound, then it becomes very unlikely that you're dealing with a gallbladder problem.
5: Yeah, that's right, Vanessa. A clean gallbladder should really be a prompt to start looking elsewhere. The ultrasound may not be able to help you, for example, with peptic ulcer disease or other problems. You rarely see them on the ultrasound.
1: So this is a really great example of how we still need to be clinicians first. Ultrasound is an amazing tool, but we need to integrate it into the clinical picture in order to make sensible clinical decisions with our patients. So I think this was another great example of how we can use ultrasound in our primary care offices. And um, if you have a high clinical suspicion that there's a gallstone hiding in there and you haven't seen it, still always go with your gut. Thanks so much, Casey.
5: Pleasure, see you later, Vanessa.
0: We're here with our primary care obstetrics and gynecology expert, Penny Wilson. Good to see you, Penny. How are you? I'm great, Heidi. It's good to be back with you. Well, I am excited about today's topic because we are talking about choosing an oral contraceptive pill. It's one of those things that feels like it should be easy, but actually requires a little bit of nuance and some understanding of what the pills contain and how they work. So thank you for being here.
6: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: So my first question is, why do some patients choose to take the pill? Because this is something they need to take every day, and there are other birth control options, like the long-acting reversible contraception, that they, you know, don't have to remember to take every day.
6: Yeah, so I've spoken previously on the podcast about why long-acting reversible contraception, or LARCs, are first line for most people. But actually, contraceptive pills are still by far the most popular type of contraceptives. And there's a few reasons for that. Partly it's just cultural, so what people are used to taking and what other people they know take. But there are some advantages as well. So for example, it can be taken for shorter periods of time and doesn't require a kind of longer time frame. Some people just prefer to take an oral tablet rather than having an implant or an injection. Some people like the sense of control that they know that they can stop it at any time without having to go back to see their doctor to have something removed. And it also has some useful non-contraceptive effects that we can use to our advantage.
0: It certainly does. So lots of reasons for people to be on the birth control pill. And there are so many different options to choose from. Could you break them down for us?
6: Yeah, there are an enormous number of birth control pills available. The two main categories would be progestin only, or the combined oral contraceptive pills that have both an estrogen and a progestin in them. And the progestin only pills in North America, it's norethindrone or also called norethisterone in some other countries. And elsewhere, there's available different types like levonogestrel or drospirinone, but uh, that's the common type of mini pill that we get is the, the norethindrone. And then when we come to the combined oral contraceptive pills, again, there are so many different combinations there. We've got four different types of estrogens. We've got ethanol, estradiol, estradiol, estradiol valerate or mestranol. And then we've got eight or nine different types of progestin. I'm not going to list them all, but there's a, a large number there. And then all of those different hormones can have different dosages as well. And then that we can have monophasic or multiphasic, 28-day packs or extended packs. So you can see we have so many permutations that we end up with hundreds of different types of pills.
0: So I feel justified and occasionally feeling confused as to which combined pill I should prescribe to my patients.
6: Yeah. It can be very confusing if you try and learn all of them, and I certainly don't advocate that anyone do that. <laughs> I think what most of us do is just to have a couple of different ones in our back pocket that we can use in different circumstances. So most people will have their like number one go-to that they'll start patients with, and then a couple of others that they might use in different circumstances. Now, when
0: you are seeing a patient who is requested to go on the birth control pill, what is your first decision point here?
6: Yeah, so the first decision point is are we going to use a progestin-only mini-pill or a combined oral contraceptive pill? Now, the combined pill is more common. We generally get better control of bleeding and it's easier to use, but there are some situations where the progestin-only pill is preferred. So there are some contraindications to estrogen where you would want to use a progestin-only pill, and you can refer to the CDC medical eligibility criteria for all of the nitty-gritty details of that, but the common ones would be early breastfeeding, so as to not suppress lactation with estrogen, and then things like risk factors for VTE, atherosclerotic disease like smoking, obesity, older age, poorly controlled hypertension, and that sort of thing.
0: What about migraine, Penny? I hear that quite commonly listed as a potential contraindication.
6: Yeah, absolutely. If a patient has a classic migraine with aura, uh, that's a MEC grade 4, so an absolute contraindication for estrogen, so progestin only for those people. Okay. Now, if your conversation
0: leads you to a combined oral contraceptive pill being the right decision for your patient, how do you then determine which one to prescribe?
6: Yeah, so the general principles of prescribing would be the lowest effective dose, well-tolerated with a good safety profile and affordable. And in some cases, you might want to pick based on non-contraceptive benefits as well. But your basic first-line option pill is going to have an estrogen with a low dose between 20 to 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, the progestin you're going to choose is typically less than or equal to 150 micrograms of levonogestrel or less than or equal to one milligram of norethindrone. And you're going to typically choose a monophasic. Now, back in the day, we used to use triphasics and biphasics a fair bit, but there's actually no evidence that they give better bleeding profile and they just make it a bit more confusing for people. The other advantage of monophasic pills is that it can be taken back to back or continuously in skipping the pill-free break. So people can then have a bit of control over when they have a withdrawal bleed.
0: You've mentioned the non-contraceptive benefits. Could you review those for us, please?
6: In fact, all combined pills are potentially helpful for a number of different issues. So all of them can potentially help with regulating of the menstrual cycle. All of them can potentially manage heavy menstrual bleeding, reduce androgenic symptoms such as acne or hirsutism, Help with managing pelvic pain or dysmenorrhea, particularly in the extended cycle formulation so people bleed less frequently. They can also help reduce the risk of endometrial or ovarian cancer, and particularly in patients who are at risk of amenorrhea like those with PCOS. And they can all be used as hormone replacement therapy for patients with premature ovarian failure.
0: Okay. So lots of advantages to taking the birth control pill beyond contraception.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. But there are also some situations where you might want to choose a particular formulation over another, and I will just point out that these kind of more modern types of pills are generally more expensive, so keep that in mind. But for example, in patients with PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, drospirinone-containing pills have the best evidence in patients with bloating or fluid retention, again, drospirinone is helpful because it's related to spironolactone, so it has a bit of an anti mineralocorticoid activity, so helps with bloating and fluid retention. For people with acne or hirsutism, as I said before, all pills can potentially help that, but some people have better results from an anti androgenic progestin like cyproterone acetate. And then there's a unusual quadrophasic pill with Dianagest in it that's particularly helpful for very heavy menstrual bleeding. It tends to reduce bleeding by a similar amount to the Mirena IUD, which is, is a pretty, pretty good blood reduction. And in theory, for people who are at a higher risk of cardiovascular events, something with an estradiol or estradiol valerate estrogen may be a bit more favorable on the cardiovascular system in terms of safety. But the data is still a little bit lacking in that
0: regard. Now, how about phenothromboembolic risk, Penny? Because I know we need to consider that when we prescribe these medications.
6: Yeah, the more modern pills have lower estrogen doses than the older pills that were the kind of original formulations. And the lower dose of estrogen has a lower VTE risk. And then the progestin also comes into it. Again, the newer types of progestins, like desogestrel. Cyproterone acetate, drospirinone, they are actually associated with a higher risk of VTE compared to the older-fashioned progestin levonogestrel. So, you know, when you've got a, a kind of newer type of pill, you've usually got a lower dose of estrogen, which gives you a lower risk, but a higher risk progestin. But having said all of that, the principles would be to use the lowest dose of estrogen that you can that's effective and also remember that the risk of VTE with any pill is significantly less than the risk with pregnancy or postpartum period. So, you know, it's not good enough reason to avoid using a contraceptive pill in somebody who would benefit from it otherwise.
0: Okay, but st- still something that's important to review with our patients.
6: Yeah, and it's the risk is highest in the first six months as well. So you certainly don't want people stopping and starting their pill because they get a bit of a fright about the risk of clots because that increases their risk again every time they restart. What else do we need to let patients know? So we need to tell them how to actually use it, so how to start it and stop it and what to do if they miss it, because it's actually very common for people to miss their pill. So I want my patients to know in the packet which ones are the active pills and which ones are the placebo or the sugar pills. And I also tell them the seven-day rule. So generally, you need to take at least seven active tablets before it starts working. So once you're into that next part of the packet, then you can miss a tablet without too many consequences. And I also want my patients to know that they can start it using what we call the quick start method. So they don't have to wait until the next period before they start it, which is what we used to advise people. But these days, they can actually start it on any day of the month and ideally straight away because we don't want them to fall pregnant between now and when they get around to starting it. But it is possible that a patient would be very, very early pregnancy when they start it at any time in the cycle. But that's okay. We just get them to do a pregnancy test in three weeks time. And if they're pregnant before they start the pill and they've had it for a couple of weeks while they're in early pregnancy, it's no big deal. There's no harm done by taking the pill when they're already pregnant. But then you would just obviously discuss the plan from there. But that's a really useful thing for people to know is they can start it at any time. Can I ask you a quick question about that? Yeah.
0: Do you do a pregnancy test in everybody who start on the birth control pill?
6: Um, No, no. I would do a pregnancy test if there was a doubt whether they were pregnant before starting and then do a three-week follow-up pregnancy test if they have a potential to be pregnant. For example, if they are not in the first five days of their cycle and they've had intercourse in the last week or whatever. Or sometime in that cycle. Okay.
0: Now, can we use this quick start method for other forms of contraception, or is it limited to the combined birth control pill?
6: You can use it for any type of contraception apart from IUDs.
0: Okay. Okay, good. So, we can use that for the rings, other pills, Depo, the implant, everything. Absolutely. Now, patients... Well, because all of us are human, we occasionally miss taking a medication and it's not an infrequent call to the office. Is what do I do? I've missed a pill.
6: Yeah, so again, it depends on the type of pill and what part of the cycle where they're in. And because of that kind of seven-day rule, they are most at risk in the first week of the active tablet and also in the last week before a pill-free break. So in those situations, you would want them to have another form of coverage for seven days until they've had seven days of active tablets again. But I generally would give patients a handout to refer to or refer them to an online tool that they can check the time of their cycle and the day that they miss and that would give them instructions. And I also just want to put in a quick reminder that the progesterone only pill, the mini pill, has a much tighter window. It has to be taken within three hours of the same time every day. Otherwise, you can be fertile that same day. And so the missed pill advice is quite different from the mini pill compared to the combined pill.
0: Yes, that's the set three alarms and don't ever miss your dose kind of pill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Recap. All right, Penny, we've come to the end of our conversation here. But before we let you go, is there any um, take-home points or summary you'd like to give us?
6: Yeah, so I think the summary would be to just become familiar with a couple of different types of pills that you can use for different patients and then make sure that you counsel your patients really well on how to take it and the risks that may be involved. And as always, take a really good history before you start any new medication. Okay,
0: super. Thanks so much for joining us, Penny. I know we'll have you back before too long to talk about managing complications that we can run into with birth control. So we look forward to seeing you again then.
1: See you then.
2: Rural Medicine Talks.
1: So I was on call in a small remote hospital, 18 hours into a 24-hour emergency room shift. And I was literally making
7: up the bed in the call room, anticipating hopefully a few hours of sleep. That, of course, is Cardi v. That means that this is rural medicine, and it also means we can have a sick patient and nowhere for them to go. Upsetting. When I heard a ruckus at the front door. What ruckus?
4: I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir?
1: So I go out and I see the nurse helping a man through the waiting room towards the emergency room. I follow them and the little trail of blood that they were tracking into the emergency room and flip through the patient's chart while he's being triaged. Now, there wasn't much in his old chart, aside from a few visits for minor traumas, that were mostly related to snowmobile accidents. So, didn't really find too much in that chart. But a few minutes later, the nurse comes out of the patient's room and says, I don't know what's going on with his eye, but it doesn't look good. So that's never something that you really want to hear one of your experienced nurses saying to you. So I look over the triage sheet quickly, noting that he's tachycardic at 124, and his blood pressure is 168 over 93. But his SATs are 98%, and he is afebrile. I head into the exam room, and there he is writhing around on the bed with one hand covering his left eye. The right side of his face is visibly bruised, and he has a subconjunctival hemorrhage on the right, a very extensive one. I ask him what happened, and he starts to yell out in pain, saying that he's in too much pain to talk about this that his left eye is burning and that I need to make it stop. Now he's clearly intoxicated, and he admits to having been on a drinking binge for a few days as well as having used some marijuana and cocaine. So that's complicating the picture a little bit but apart from the writhing, he was still pretty cooperative. He said that he was walking down the street after a game of cards where he had won a lot of money and that he was suddenly jumped by a group of young men. They kicked him repeatedly in the face and head as well as in the mid-gut and the lower back. He said that they kept at it for what felt like hours, but based on timing that we pieced together afterwards, it was probably around five, maybe 10 minutes. And then he walked to the hospital by himself. He describes his burning pain inside his left eye that would come and go And he also said that when the assailants first left him, he was able to open his eye with a lot of pain and that his vision was not normal at that point. He described being able to see from the top half of his eye as if he could see everything in the upper portion of his visual field, but the bottom half of his visual field was completely black. Now, it was difficult to examine him due to the writhing, but I did a quick primary and secondary survey, which, aside from the facial bruising and swelling and a few abrasions on his flank, were totally normal. And then I zeroed in on his eye. Now, I remember being told in my training that if you suspect a globe rupture, then you shouldn't be prying the eye open and that you need to leave that to the ophthalmologists. But given I didn't have access to imaging or a consultant, I couldn't really call for a possible transfer of a patient without having done at least a cursory exam. So I approached the patient and his eye cautiously.
7: Very dramatic, but these cases are dramatic. You're concerned that if you do an exam that indeed the eyeball will go squish and the contents will be flying all over the emergency department floor. It's terrifying.
1: Now there was a ton of periorbital swelling and what were either tears or vitreous fluid pooling in his medial canthus. I pulled open the lids very carefully and at first I could only see a mass of red and white but with some very mild traction on the upper lid, I was able to see the iris and the round pupil, as well as appreciate what seemed to be anterior bulging of the sclera. He was able to move the eye and there was no clear sign of proptosis, so I quickly let go and told him to keep the eye shut. I was worried about facial fractures as well, so we called in the x-ray tech to do those facial views, and these confirmed what looked like bilateral orbital rim fractures. Luckily, there was no obvious opacification of either maxillary sinus, but there was so much soft tissue swelling sort of overlying it that there were shadows all over the place. And so I wasn't convinced of my read. In any case, it didn't really matter acutely because he could move his eyes and none of this was going to actually change my management in my setting. This guy had already earned himself a trip to a tertiary care center and some TLC from an ophthalmologist. Now, as is often the case in these rural med situations, the next step was how to temporize the patient until he got to definitive care. My first priority was to protect the eye. Now, sometimes we have a wee plastic shield that we can use, but of course, we couldn't find one that night. In the past, when we couldn't find the shields, we've used those white styrofoam cups that are sort of ubiquitous in emergency rooms, but we were out of those too. So we went to the coffee machine in the waiting room, and we cut up one of those throwaway mugs with the coffee cup pictures on them. This was super classy. And I taped it down with so, so, so much tape and begged him not to touch it, which of course didn't work. We must have retaped that thing 1,000 times in the next several hours. Next up was trying to prevent his eye from getting any worse. He was clearly at high risk of infection, given the mechanism of injury and the amount of time it was going to take for an ophthalmologist to see him. He certainly didn't need a case of endophthalmitis on top of everything else that he was going to be dealing with. So we thought about what prophylactic measures we could take. We updated his tetanus vaccination because that was due, and then we pulled out the good old IV antibiotics. And based on what we looked up, we went with vanco and Ceftaz. Well, I should say we would have used Ceftaz, but we didn't have any. So we went with Ceftriaxone. Now, what other things do you need to think about with a globe rupture patient? You want to try to keep them as calm and as relaxed as possible. So depending on your context, depending on the patient's underlying state, consider anxiolytics and analgesia. Try to keep them lying down and minimize any exertion on the part of the patient. You really, really want to drill it into their head that they need to be literally on bed rest. Depending on the patient, this could include maybe even considering a Foley catheter to help minimize the sort of changes in blood pressure and changes in position that they'll have to use to get up and go to the bathroom. This can also, of course, be useful if if the patient's going to be going on a long flight. And along with that, think about anti-emetics, because we don't want this poor patient retching or straining in any way. So for this guy, I ordered some on On and IV fluids and regular AcuChex. Of course, having the patient not be acutely intoxicated would certainly have helped in this situation, and I considered sedating and intubating the patient in order to better protect his eye. But then I thought about it. It was going to be at least eight hours from now that he would be seen if all went well in terms of transport. And of course, there could be weather delays and the risk of having an intubated patient lying in our small emergency room for hours without an RT or a critical care nurse or doc to be constantly monitoring them. Well, I think you can see where I'm going with this. I chose not to intubate him because I figured losing an eye was better than losing neurologic or cardiac function if the intubation went poorly and if he had other intoxicants on board and things got hairy and we had him stuck in our emergency department for ages. And in the end, I'm really glad I made that decision because 24 hours later, he was still in our emergency room. Another more emergent case had come in and needed to be medevaced, so the plane for my guy was taken and he had to wait. So I was definitely lucky with that choice. Now things got a wee bit bonkers in the emergency room at one point in the more than 24 hours we were waiting for his transport to arrive, because as it turns out, someone snuck in some vodka for him, so suddenly he was drunk again, which was a tad confusing. Well, it wasn't confusing when we realized he was drunk. What was confusing was that he started acting sort of a bit inappropriate, he was sort of had less of a filter, he was slurring his words, and seemed to be slightly disoriented. I was certainly worried that he was having an intracranial bleed from the head trauma until we noticed the vodka bottle tucked into his girlfriend's shirt. She hadn't closed it properly, so there was a leaking 40-ounce Smirnoff-shaped lump under her t-shirt, which kind of gave it away. (laughs) Nailed it. But all in all, he did really well, and after 36 hours post-injury, he was in the OR in the tertiary care center. It turns out that in addition to his globe rupture, he had bilateral orbital rim fractures as well as some midface fractures. And while when I first saw him, my mind was saying, oh God, this is one of those big emergencies, you know, focus, don't freak out. It turns out that from an ER doc point of view, there wasn't really a ton to do. I had to protect the eye, prevent infection, and, you know, maybe discourage him from drinking in the exam room. In all seriousness, though, it was a great review for me of the checklist of things I needed to do for a globe rupture, as well as reminding me to tell the ward clerk to restock those eye shields. Because nothing announces that you come from a remote hospital more than having a coffee cup taped to your face.
7: If I were to read from, I don't know, Corpendium, it might say this. For patients with globe perforation, elevation of the head of the bed, provide analgesia and anti avoid avoid valsalva maneuver, obtain emergency consultation, prescribe prophylactic empiric antibiotics to reduce the risk of endophthalmitis appropriate antibiotics include cefazolin or vancomycin with a fourth generation fluoroquinolone. And I would just emphasize what Cardi said, sometimes these patients come in and there is so much swelling it is all but impossible to get an exam outside of the operating room. In those cases CT scanning can be extraordinarily helpful. Its sensitivity for globe rupture is upward of 90 plus percent. But don't be lazy, don't use a little bit of swelling as an excuse to not do an exam. You should always try and get an exam and try and get some visual acuity and look at that pupil. But sometimes, you just can't. Her name's Katie V, Rural Medicine. It's good stuff. And I love that 24 hour wait time. Upsetting!
5: Care Medical
7: Abstracts with Ken and
2: Steve. Welcome to the May or May Not 2022 episode of PCMA. I'm Ken Milne and joining me in the co-host seat down there in Phoenix is Steve Brown. Welcome, Steve.
4: Yeah, good to see you, Ken. It's great to have the may or may not joke at least once a year.
2: Yeah, no, once a year I'm allowed to make the may or may not joke. Otherwise, uh, I don't think this episode is going to have a ton of dad jokes, but you know what? It's a it's a monosynaptic reflex. It comes up and it's just out. It doesn't go to a higher order. It's not hitting any of the cortex. I'm smooth braining it and I'm just giving you the dad jokes.
4: Yeah, at this point we just need to give the listeners you know, what they expect. <laughs> we don't want to surprise anybody. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we've got
2: 10 really good articles to go through to pick out some clinical pearl, talk about some methodology, point out how it reinforces what we believe or maybe refutes what we believe or have been practicing. And so let's start. And this is abstract number one. Paper one. Management and outcome of adults diagnosed with acute pulmonary embolism in primary care, community-based retrospective, cohort study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, 2022. Now, Steve, we're starting off this month with one of these abstracts that is pull over or sit down kind of article because it shows... Have you pulled over? Are you sitting down? Yes. Yes, I am. It is possible to treat a PE patient as an outpatient. (gasps) Maybe this should have been in the Halloween edition. So the objective of this study was to describe 30-day outcomes stratified by the initial site of care decisions. And it was a retrospective cohort study. So we're talking about an observational study. It was conducted at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And these were adults diagnosed with an acute PE in the primary care setting 2013 to 2019. So this is fairly recent practice. Primary outcome was a composite of 30-day serious adverse events. And so those serious adverse events, you know, you're using a blood thinner, is did they have a major bleed? And they define that using a standard. A very objective all-cause mortality outcome. And of course, venous thromboembolism. So that made up that composite at 30 days. Secondary outcomes looked at 7-day PE-related hospitalizations, either initially or delayed. So they included 646 patients in this study. The median age was 64 and just over half were male. One in five, so just over 20% of cases, were sent home directly from the office. Now, 80% that means were sent to the hospital either through the emergency department or directly to the hospital. Of those referred to the ED or hospital, that 80%, more than a third of them were then discharged without event. Eight patients had serious adverse events within 30 days. So of those eight patients, four had VTEs. There was one major bleed and three deaths. Seven of these patients though, of the eight, were initially hospitalized. So these were not the patients that were sent home. All three deaths occurred in patients with known metastatic cancer who were initially referred to the hospital, not sent home. Six patients initially treated as outpatients bounced back, I guess you could say, and were hospitalized within seven days of being sent home. So from my perspective reading this study, I mean, up here in the great white north, we've been managing RPE patients about half the time as outpatients for more than a decade. That was a study back in 2010. Now I suspect with the introduction of low molecular weight heparin and DOAX, now, I bet you that group or that number has even gone up. It is the exception now that I admit a patient with a PE. And you can risk stratify these patients using things like the PESI score. I like this simplified PESI score because I can do it in the outpatient setting. How old's the patient? Do they have a history of cancer? Do they have chronic cardiopulmonary disease? What's their heart rate? What's their blood pressure? And what's their O2 sat? And of course, there's an app for that. But that's all stuff we can get in the office. We don't have to have, you know, a VBG. We don't have to have some pro-BNP number, nothing laboratory. It's just data we can collect right then and there. Now, there is another criteria called the Hestia criteria as well. Now, this study is limited by the observational study design, and there is a possibility of selection bias due to case ascertainment and lead time bias. But overall, I think, you know, when you consider the literature as a whole, what are we admitting these people for in the age of DOAX in a low-risk patient Who's stable and can swallow a pill and has good follow-up?
4: Yeah, I think the big threat to the generalizability here is, certainly from my setting, is that these patients, it was in Kaiser, and they had ready access to CT pulmonary angiogram. Mm-hmm. They had radiologists, pulmonologists, and hematologists available around the clock for a consult. So maybe in your setting, Ken, maybe you're able to get a CT pulmonary angiogram. So that you would know how severe it was, or even if you had another question about what the diagnosis was, I don't have ready access to that from an outpatient perspective. And every single one of these patients had imaging, 96% of them or something had a CT pulmonary angiogram that was required to even be enrolled in the study. And they were all pretty low risk. Like the the PESI was 58% of them were low risk, 28% intermediate risk. I just think it's hard when a patient's short of breath, you don't know what's going on, you need the CT to prove the pulmonary embolus, then that's the only way you'd be able to send them home.
2: Yeah, so you could send them to get diagnostic imaging that day through the emergency department, which is fine. And then it's reasonable to send them back to the outpatient setting to be managed as an outpatient. If of course they're low risk, right? You're talking about low risk patients. I mean, the high risk patients that come in that are tachycardic, Their SATs are low. They've got multiple comorbidities. I mean, that's the clinical gestalt. They're like, yeah, "Yeah, they need supplemental oxygen. They're, They're coming in anyways. There's other reasons, right? And why do they have the pulmonary embolism?
7: Bottom line.
2: There is no high quality evidence supporting the inpatient management of low risk patients with pulmonary embolisms, which means it's reasonable to treat a select group of individuals without patient management
5: paper two
4: paper number two ken i think i'm a glutton for punishment for picking this article this is the parallax study effect of valsartan versus standard medical therapy on plasma nt pro bnp concentration and submaximal exercise capacity in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. exactly. So we want to know if this medicine can improve outcomes in normal ejection heart failure. And I'm going to have to do some background here, Ken. So I don't know if you just want to like, you know, get a cup of coffee or, or take a nap or something. Sure. I can clear out my inbox here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So two years ago, Ken, you'll remember in April, 2020, we talked on PCMA about the Paragon HF trial, which showed that Sacubitril-Valsartan is not effective to prevent hospitalizations or decrease mortality in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. That's HEF-PEF. When we were in training, we did not have hef and hef but now we do. So all the hip kids are saying HEF-PEF and hef If we go back even further, there's a 2014 New England Journal of Medicine Paradigm HF trial that said there may be a role for angiotensin-neprolysin inhibition, ARNI, like sacubitril valsartan instead of an ACE or an ARB in patients with symptomatic heart failure, low ejection fraction, and elevated B-type natriuretic peptide. So that's HEF-REF. And this is an American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, Class 1 recommendation based on B-level evidence. And this guideline change was made like, stat emergency based on one flawed study that was stopped early, that was industry funded and multiple authors having conflict of interest. So I still think that it's not for sure, for sure that even in HEF-REF, it's the right medicine for lots of patients. But today we're going to talk about HEF-PEF and this medicine. So there's also a paramount trial for HEF-PEF, which used the surrogate marker NT pro BNP is an outcome, which I will not bore you all with. Some background here. Brand name is Entresto in the US, $660 per month for this medicine. So today we're going to talk about the Parallax trial, which studies the medicine in patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure. Again, looking at surrogate endpoints. And, you know, this is when you start to just dig a little and you're like, what you know, I have to face Ken with this article, but <laughs> all the authors have direct ties to Novartis, the makers of Entresto. Some of them are employees. The third author gets funding or personal fees from 33 different drug companies. You cannot make this stuff up. I'm, I'm honestly kind of impressed. The trial was a 24 week randomized, double blind, parallel group clinical trial. Of over 2,500 patients in 396 centers in 32 countries with heart failure, ejection fraction more than 40%, elevated NT pro BNP levels, structural heart disease, and reduced quality of life. Their primary end points was change from baseline in the in the BNP level at week 12 and the six-minute walk distance at 24 weeks. The secondary endpoints were change in quality of life and also New York Heart Association class at 24 weeks. This is just like a goldmine of flaws in the study, but the patients were randomized to this medicine, the Sacubritol Valsaltran, or to background medication-based individualized comparator, which means if you were taking an ACE or an ARB or nothing, you were left on an ACE or an ARB or nothing. This is a straw man comparator. 12% of the patients we're not taking an ACE or an ARB, and we're not given an ACE or an ARB. So even with all these flaws, so many flaws, a trifecta, at least, of threats to validity, surrogate endpoints, strawman, comparator, drug company-funded study, they could only detect a small difference in a surrogate marker, NT proBNP at 12 weeks. And even this, they didn't even really show you how much the BNP went down. But they use this mean. And so basically what it means is about 100 picograms per mil less in your BNP by taking this medicine. And they made a graph that was like a log of the pro-BNP. And there was an imperceptible difference. No difference in the six-minute walking distance. No difference in heart failure, class, or quality of life. And there were harms. Drug discontinuation number needed to harm 50. Hypotension number needed to harm 12. I could go on forever. What are your thoughts, Ken?
2: You know, I love this study for all the reasons you've been talking about. Because you know, it's a cautionary tale. You go to clinicaltrials.gov and you see their primary outcome when it was registered was only pro BNP. Now, I want to stop all the flood of emails I'll get. I'm not anti BNP. I'm let's say BNP hesitant. All right, (laughs) but I'm certainly not pro BNP. I mean, I can't remember the last time I ordered a BNP. But actually, they changed their primary outcome to be a co-primary outcome. And of course, we know there can only be one primary outcome. And it was much more patient-oriented, right? Like, how far can you walk in six minutes? Super. So functional, clinically relevant, and stuff like that. Way more poo than a sue, a surrogate outcome, or a loo, a lab-oriented outcome. So I, I think the conclusions, you know, that they they had in this trial would be that this combination drug is really expensive and not superior to usual or ignore care for a patient-oriented outcome
4: yeah and and you look at the spin in this and and the conclusion is wow it really improved the bnp this is yeah they led with that yeah they led with that yeah
2: so yeah you spin me right round baby right round like a funded study right round baby
7: bottom line.
4: sacubitril valsartan has no impact on patient oriented outcomes in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and may cause harm.
3: Paper three.
4: Abstract number three, a study of
2: mirtazapine for agitated behavior and dementia, a randomized double blinded placebo control trial, Lancet 2021. So those taking care of patients with dementia we'll know that agitation can be a real challenge not the patients but to control the behavior can be a real challenge so this is the sinbad trial this is the study of mirtazapine for agitated behaviors in dementia and it's a double blinded placebo control trial done in 26 uk centers now they included patients if they met a standard for suspecting alzheimer's disease and you had to have a coexisting agitation definition based on the Cohen-Mansfield agitation inventory, and you had to have a score of 45 or more. So they had to like suspect that you had Alzheimer's disease, and then you had to have this agitation score of 45 or more. That got you in. Lots of exclusions. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either receive placebo or mirtazapine with a target dose of 45 milligrams a day, and they could titrate that up to a maximum. Together with treatment as usual as the comparator. So they were randomly allocated, but they did it a block stratification based on the center and the type of residence that the patient came from. The primary outcome was a reduction of agitation measured by this CMAI score at 12 weeks. So three months later, they looked at the patients. They got just over 200 participants recruited and the mean CMAI score at 12 weeks were not statistically different between the two groups adverse events were also not statistically different with about two thirds in each group reporting adverse events, but there were more deaths in the mirtazapine group, but we're talking about small numbers. So it wasn't statistically significant, but seven in the mirtazapine group and one in the control group. So this randomized control trial does not support the use of mirtazapine for the treatment of agitated patients with dementia. And I should point out, this was originally a three-arm trial, but the carbamazepine group was dropped due to low enrollment. There was a greater than 20% loss to follow-up in the mirtazapine group, which makes me more skeptical. But since the data actually supported the null hypothesis, I'm less concerned about that.
4: Yeah. This scale was new to me and I think Mm -hmm. appropriately validated. It goes up to 203 points, 29 measures, seven point Likert scale. So 45 is, you know, that's quite a bit of agitation, but I guess not super terrible. I thought that the, you know, sometimes when you read an introduction to a paper, you learn a ton. And so I learned this is a genuine major problem that faces our patients and our families for agitated patients with dementia. And we know that antipsychotics are not recommended. They describe an approach to agitation, which I really liked, which I thought might be helpful for listeners, the DICE approach. So really taking like a methodical approach to something, DICE is D, describe the problem, I, investigate the cause, C, create a plan, E, and evaluate the effectiveness, which I thought was great. So the answer is probably not medicines. And I like that they tried mirtazapine because it's the most commonly prescribed antidepressant in the elderly. They talk about in England, but I'm guessing also in the US. The geriatricians that I've worked with love mirtazapine. So it actually has not been shown to be particularly effective for dementia. And now we also know that it's not particularly effective for agitation. So I think if people are going to take anything home, it's probably that medicines are not the answer, but maybe try DICE. See if you can figure out what's causing the agitation and address it.
2: Well, you know, this is a real problem, you know, the behavior stuff, especially when it comes to caregiver fatigue, caregiver burnout, and uh, contributes probably to elder abuse, you know, because it can be very frustrating dealing with someone who is cognitively declining, who that you've loved for many, many years and is now getting aggressive towards you. So I wish we had more effective management strategies for these patients. Bottom line. The use of mirtazapine to control agitation in patients with dementia is not supported by this multi-center, double-blinded, randomized control trial.
7: Paper four.
4: Abstract number four, effect of screen time on recovery from concussion, a randomized clinical trial in JAMA Pediatrics, November 2021. We've talked here about a return to light exercise after concussion, but what about screen time? These authors enrolled patients from one emergency department in Massachusetts. These patients had a concussion to determine whether screen time in the first 48 hours after a concussion has an effect on the duration of concussive symptoms. We've been talking about scales. So we have another scale here, a post-concussive symptom scale. And so these patients had scores of 21 and 25, and the maximum score is 132. The patients were between 12 and 25 years old. The mean was 17. They were advised not to attend work or school or complete any remote work. And they were followed for 10 days. So this is a very like short, succinct, get in, get out study. They had 66 patients that were assigned to the screen time permitted group for 48 hours and 59 to the screen time abstinent group for 48 hours. So the study's 10 days. The intervention was two days. The primary outcome was resolution of symptoms, which I thought was a great primary outcome, defined as total post-concussive symptom score of three points or lower. So they didn't mess around with, oh, we're going to, is it five or less than the other one, blah, blah. It's just, did they get basically cured? The results, in the screen time permitted group, the median recovery time was eight days. In the screen time restricted group, the median recovery time was three and a half days. They looked at the actual amount of screen time, which was self-reported, much, much more, about six times more in the screen time permitted group, 630 minutes in two days. There's some limitations here. It's a single center. There's a social desirability bias from self-reported screen time. The patients were not blinded and there was poor follow-up. Only about two-thirds of the patients completed all the surveys. And so I really thought this was intriguing. It's not a definitive study. And this is enough for me to advise no screen time for 48 hours after concussion. But Ken, that might be just because I'm the parent of two teenagers and I'm always trying to get my kids off the screens anyway. Come on, shoot, 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 shoot. I thought this was intriguing. Okay,
2: I agree with you that it's intriguing, but I think the results are too good to be true. Small study, single center, like you said, convenient sample, during study hours, which were not defined. So we don't know when they did this. The selection bias patients could be excluded if the attending physicians declined to participate. So you could see a situation going, yeah, no, I just don't feel like doing it based on this kid, right? It was unblinded, which you mentioned. So did the participants know what the current recommendation was? So, you know, and then when they report, well, we know we're not supposed to be on the screen. We know that that should find a benefit. So I'm fine because I stayed off the screen. And I found the self-reporting as screen time. Why? I mean, I get alerts at the end of my week saying, this is how much screen time I've had on my phone. My smartphone tells me how much screen time, whether it's up or down on a weekly basis. I can't see how they couldn't have just got an objective measure on screen time. And when you start losing a quarter to a third of patients to follow up, that really muddies the waters for being able to figure out uh, you know, what is, if there is, an effect size here. So I really think their conclusion should be, we just don't know about screen time yet based on this study because of all the limitations we've just talked about. And I would leave it up to the parent and the child. Shared
4: decision. Teenager, would you like to not use your screen for two days?
2: (laughs) Exactly. How sick are they, right? They're well enough to be texting. They can go to school. Uh Uh-oh, now I'm sounding like one of those guys. Get off my lawn, you kids.
7: Bottom line.
4: Restricting screen time for 48 hours may hasten recovery after a mild concussion. Paper 5.
2: Abstract number 5, effects of combined valrenicline with nicotine patch and extended treatment duration on smoking cessation, a randomized clinical trial in JAMA 2021. Steve, you and I have often discussed on PCMA how important it is For smoking cessation, one of the best things we could ever help our patients do and how difficult it is. So this question was asking, does combining valrenicline with a nicotine patch or, or not just the combination, or extending the treatment duration increase the success that you'll have smoking cessation at one year? So it was a double-blinded, two-by-two factorial randomized control trial conducted at two U.S. clinics. The primary outcome was self-reported seven-day point prevalence of abstinence at a year, but they confirmed it with carbon monoxide testing. So they included adults, 18 and older, who spoke English, who were smoking five cigarettes or more a day, and they checked their CO levels, and they had to have a minimum of five parts per million or greater. And these patients also, and I think this is really important, They also had to express that they wanted to quit, couldn't be pregnant, or the patient had to be willing to use an acceptable birth control method. There was a whole bunch of exclusions, like a long list. I'm not going to list them here. They did a block randomization to one or two levels of the two experimental factors. So they were looking at single or combo therapy or standard duration or extended duration. So those were the two options. So basically four groups. The cohort consisted of just over 1,200 participants who were randomized. The mean age was 49 years. Just over half were female. 60% completed the treatment and 70% provided final follow-up, which means 30% didn't. There was no statistical difference between the two treatment factors, whether they went with a combo or solo therapy or whether they went with standard therapy duration or went with the longer duration. When they looked at side effects, 24 to 31% reported some nausea or insomnia across all four groups. So this is just another trial demonstrating how hard smoking cessation can be. And these were motivated individuals. These people signed up to do a study and expressed their desire to quit. However, 40% didn't complete the treatment. 30% were lost to follow-up. Adding that nicotine patch or doubling the duration of treatment To six months from three months didn't improve success rate beyond the quarter or about 25% of the participants. And the fact that this trial was industry supported, so they had something to gain here if it came out really well, makes me believe this null hypothesis
4: even more. Yeah, there were a couple things I wanted to point out. So they actually recruited people. You mentioned they were motivated, which is really important. So you obviously have to only try smoking cessation with your patients that are really motivated but they recruited them from social network sites mainly. So Mm -hmm. these were not people that walked into your office that are motivated. These are people that saw something on Twitter, probably not within their first 48 hours of a concussion, (laughs) but they saw something on social media and, and came in to get smoking cessation advice. And the other piece is that everyone had counseling sessions. So do not pass go, do not collect $200. We always teach our residents that there has to be some kind of counseling component to smoking cessation. Every randomized controlled trial of smoking cessation treatments includes counseling. And I think actually, I tend to try nicotine replacement or varenicline. That was not a change for me. I have not generally prescribed them together. But actually, a change for me is that probably if the patient has not quit smoking after 12 weeks of varenicline, it doesn't make sense to continue it another 12 weeks because My patients do have pretty dramatic side effects to varenicline. People talk about the dreams, the insomnia, and the nausea pretty regularly. Bottom line. Adding a nicotine patch to varenicline or extending
2: treatment beyond three months to increase smoking cessation is not supported by this trial.
4: Paper six. Abstract number six. I think I have a recommendation here, which you may already know but I think is pretty useful for a pretty common condition in primary care. We're going to talk about mild to moderate acne and a systematic review of topical preparations published in the British Journal of Dermatology, September 2021. I think treating mild to moderate acne well in your primary care office is a great opportunity. Lots of patients come in requesting a referral to dermatology, but it's not needed in most cases. And I think here you can either confirm or change your practice about what works. So these authors conducted a meta-analysis to identify the most effective and best tolerated topical treatments for acne. They searched the appropriate databases to find randomized control trial for mild to moderate acne and a primary outcome of self-reported improvement. So that's a pretty good patient-oriented outcome. They found 40 trials, over 18,000 participants. And they did comparing to each other and ranking them and all this. But I'll just give you the few take homes here. So benzoyl peroxide works compared to placebo. Number needed to treat of 11 for self-reported improvement. If you take the benzoyl peroxide and you add adapalene, which is a retinoid in the US, it's brand name Differin. If you add that to benzoyl peroxide compared to benzoyl peroxide alone, number needed to treat of five. Benzyl peroxide plus clindamycin, number in a treat of seven compared to benzyl peroxide alone. Tretinoin, which is what I had generally been using as my second line, does rank higher than benzyl peroxide alone, but not as high as adapalene. There were low rates of withdrawal, so patients tolerated the medicines pretty well, although the confidence rating for these studies were low to very low. They had concerns about bias and industry funding. But, you know, when the evidence confirms what you already do, you just power through all the flaws in the studies. So most of our patients have come in and they've already tried benzoyl peroxide. They, you know, it's on the commercials. They come to see us. So if you can add adapalene or a retinoid, that's available for $45 for 45 grams, according to GoodRx. Benzoyl peroxide is $11 for 60 grams of 5%. Double up the meds or even triple see your patient back in one or two months for mild to moderate acne. This will definitely, you'll be able to keep a lot of the patients in your office. Due to sun exposure, we recommend the benzoyl peroxide in the morning and the retinoids at night.
2: So I'm just going to highlight just a couple of points that I wanted to pick out of this paper. One of them was a shout out for, in their methodology, they convened a patient panel of 10 people with current or former acne And ask them, hey, what do you think is important? Oh, I was all over that from an EBM perspective. You know, we don't see that often. Another thing is when you often read systematic reviews, and and again, this was the most important part of a systematic review is the systematic review, not the network meta-analysis. Network meta-analysis adds a little bit of complexity because you're not comparing apples to apples directly. You're comparing to apples, to oranges, to bananas, and trying to figure out which fruit is best. So... That's one thing. The other thing is, when you're reading the abstract, you'll see, hey, we had 40 or 50 papers, trials, wasn't it? Something like that? 40. But actually, y- you look down and they only had 11 that could be analyzed for their primary outcome. So it kind of overinflates. oh, I think they had 40 or 50 trials with you know tens of thousands of patients. But you've got to remember, look at the actual statistic that they used for their primary outcome. And in this case, it was 11 trials with 7,000 patients. So just... A little
4: bit of caution with that. Bottom line. Try adapalene and benzoyl peroxide in combination for your patients with mild to moderate acne.
3: Paper 7.
4: Abstract number 7. Efficacy of
2: Acupuncture for Chronic Prostatitis, Chronic Pelvic Pain Syndrome, a randomized trial. Annals of Internal Medicine, 2021. The objective this, of this trial was to determine the long-term efficacy of acupuncture for chronic prostatitis or chronic pelvic pain. So it has a lot of good things about it. It was multi-center. It was randomized. They used a sham control. They enrolled men 18 to 50 years of age with discomfort or pain in the pelvic region for at least three of the last six months without evidence of infection. And then they had this scoring system, the National Institute of Chronic Health chronic prostatitis symptom index, not familiar with it, and you had to score at least 15 on this thing. Long lists of exclusions. I'm not going to go through them, except one thing wasn't excluded, uh, prior exposure to acupuncture. Patients were randomized one-to-one in permeated blocks of four to six stratified by the site. Acupuncturists were not blinded, but the patients and outcome assessors were, so there was some unblinding it wasn't a triple blinded study and the person performing the acupuncture knew the treatment group got 20 30 minute sessions of real and i'm doing air quotes here real acupuncture over eight weeks while the sham group got the same number over the same amount of time but the needles were only inserted to a very small depth of two to three millimeters at non-acupuncture sites So patients were told they were going to either get traditional or minimal acupuncture. They had how many primary outcomes, Steve? Dose. Two. Two. So the proportion of patients who responded at eight weeks and at 12 weeks, and they defined a response at a six point drop on this scale. The mean age of the enrolled men was 36 years, and the mean score that they had was 31 to start. And they got some very impressive results. It was 61 versus 37% had this primary outcome. So benefit with real acupuncture at eight weeks, and it was 62 versus 38% at 32 weeks. Now there were more adverse events in the acupuncture group compared to the sham group, 9% versus 6%, so a 3% difference. And then what they did, which I thought was really good, is they assessed blinding. And one of the ways they assessed blinding was with the James Blinding Index or the BI was used to estimate how successful they were in the blinding. And one on this index represents perfect blinding, and they got 0.6. So, these were not consecutive patients presenting to their primary care clinician or urologist, but these were volunteers recruited via newspapers or a website, and they had some hospital posters up. This could introduce some selection bias for people who... Believed or were motivated that acupuncture worked. And they actually confirmed this in their supplemental material. One out of 440 participants, one patient said, Yeah, acupuncture, I don't think it really works. I don't think it'll be effective for anything or for chronic pelvic pain. A supermajority of the 440, and what I mean by supermajority is more than 70% said, Yeah, acupuncture should work in general and it should work specifically for my pelvic pain. More participants, or three times in the sham group, had acupuncture before. Now, these are small numbers, though. It was like 4.7%, 1.4%, small numbers. And more than 10 times relative the number in the sham group perceived that they were in the sham group. It was 0.5 versus 6.3%. This and the James BI suggest that there was some blinding, even though their sensitivity analysis suggested its influence was minimal. But these issues and the whole idea of what's the pretest probability that there's meridians in your body and there's a flow of chi and that by actually setting of needles can interrupt or reset that flow of chi to correct their chronic pain make me highly skeptical of the author's results and the conclusions.
4: Um, Yeah, I have nothing to add. (laughs) Sorry, I just woke up, Ken, and I... Yeah, sorry, snap, snap, snap. Let me guess, uh, acupuncture study was flawed.
2: Well, all studies are flawed, to be fair, right? All studies have limitations and flaws. I really do try to put the same level of skepticism, you know, on all claims, on all medical claims. I I mean, not all claims have to be skeptical.
7: Bottom line.
2: I can't recommend acupuncture for patients with chronic prostatitis and chronic pelvic pain.
4: Paper eight. Abstract number eight, accuracy of signs, symptoms, and hematologic parameters for the diagnosis of infectious mononucleosis, a systematic review and meta-analysis from our good buddy Mark Abel and colleagues in the Journal of American Board of Family Medicine, 2021 November. So Mark is, I think, probably one of the mono, if not the mono diagnosis experts in the world. So here we have a systematic review. We know that diagnosing infectious mononucleosis can be challenging in a primary care office. There's lots of things that kind of look like mono. And so you might be thinking about mono if you have a young adult, age 15 to 24, who has a sore throat, lymph node enlargement, fever, tonsillar enlargement, a pharyngeal rash, fatigue, and another rash. And so the pretest probability for adolescents with sore throats, age 16 to 20, is 8% for mono. So about one in 12 of your patients, like description that we just described who walk into your office with a sore throat are gonna have mono. So these authors conducted a systematic review to determine what signs and symptoms and hematologic parameters are most useful to diagnose mono against a reference standard test. They registered with the Prospero database, they followed the Prisma protocol, and they searched PubMed. They found 17 studies with between 25 and 1,000 patients. Most of the studies were from the US or Europe. The studies used two reference standards, two different reference standards, the heterophile antibody test or the viral capsid antigen test. So with every diagnostic test study, you need to make sure you have a good gold standard, and that's a good gold standard. The prevalence of mono ranged wildly from 2% to 80% in these- 0 to 100. Perspective. Yeah, exactly. You could either have <laughs> 0% shift in mono or you already had mono. <laughs> Zero and to the physical findings are actually not super useful to diagnose mono. So splenomegaly, likelihood ratio of around two if it's positive, negative 0.66 if they don't have splenomegaly, not that helpful. Palatal petechiae, they only gave a range, but it was from one to 11 and negative likelihood ratio of 0.6 to 0.94. So the absence of palatal petechiae does not help in any way ruling out mono. Any lymphadenopathy is not helpful if you find it, likelihood ratio of one, but is a little bit helpful if you don't find adenopathy, negative likelihood ratio of 0.37. Not super useful, we'd really like it to be 0.1, but 0.37 is decent. And then they also noted that posterior cervical lymphadenopathy was helpful. But actually, hematologic parameters are super useful. If you have an absolute lymphocyte count of greater than 4 times 10 to the ninth, your positive likelihood ratio is 10. Highly likely to change your management. And even more useful, atypical lymphocytes greater than 40% likelihood ratio of 50. So that's like a slam dunk. So... Physical exam findings have some utility in diagnosing mono, lymphocytes are even more helpful, and the absence of lymphadenopathy is most helpful for ruling out mono.
2: Yeah, hey, great to see Mark publishing some more papers, love reading his work. Um, Hey Mark, uh, wasn't exactly an exhaustive search, PubMed only. We did banter around a bit about the 2% versus 80% prevalence that really only impacts sensitivity and specificity because it's based on prevalence, whereas likelihood ratios are independent of prevalence. So we, we can put that joke aside about, you know, the prevalence in the studies. But likelihood ratios, we really want to see something, you know, for positive, greater than five, if not 10. And the vast majority, in the range of one to three for these signs and symptoms of mono, except for the lab test, which you mentioned, and they had some pretty decent ones, right? 10 or that one with had 50 and the negative likelihood ratios or the likelihood ratio negative was even less robust to rule out the condition but it was interesting they they failed to mention the one diagnostic test that was I would say the likelihood ratio would be 100 to infinity I prescribed them some Amoxil they came back with a rash oh it's mono right isn't that the 100% diagnostic criteria.
4: Yep. I know they have it I guess it now. they didn't put that in there. uh, they didn't have that in the literature. <laughs> it's great because, you know, you'll, for, for medical students or residents that are, you know, more junior, the, the attending will tell you, oh, with mono, you have to really check for this and, oh, they didn't have palatal petechiae. Yeah. Oh, they, you know, didn't have, and, and you're just thinking in the back of your head the whole time. Yeah, buddy. Like, what's the likelihood ratio? Like, this is not changing our management at all. Bottom line. In high pretest probability patients, you probably need to do the definitive test for mono, although hematologic parameters are more accurate than signs and symptoms.
2: Paper nine. Abstract number nine, addressing gender inequities, creation of a multi-institutional consortium of women physicians in academic emergency medicine. This is in AEM 2021. Now, Steve, last month we talked about The gender pay gap in the House of Medicine and the bottom line was we needed to shift our focus from measuring gender inequity in medicine to implementing some solutions to this serious problem. So that's why this paper is there in follow-up. So the goal of this article was to describe the creation of a multi-institutional consortium of women faculty in emergency medicine to promote career advancement and address issues of gender inequity. But I think some of the lessons here don't just apply to emergency medicine and academic emergency medicine. So I think you can generalize somewhat to women in medicine. So the consortium brought together female EM faculty from four hospitals associated with Harvard. The project consisted of identifying at least two site champions from each site. They developed events based on informal needs assessment and a literature review. They developed a system of information sharing for important policy information among the hospitals. They set some goals and priorities using an interactive cycle of identify, learn, develop, and assess. And I will put that sort of cycle in the show notes so that you can see it. And they identified four key domains, leadership, finances, communication, and curriculum development. So we do know that women are significantly underrepresented in medicine. And this consortium brought together a group of women who hold academic positions at one of the most prestigious medical schools in the world. So it may lack external validity to women working in other clinical settings. I don't know. This group also chose to focus exclusively on faculty. And I think that's a limitation because trainees may have different needs and different desires and different preferences and different struggles as they're coming up than someone who's already in their early career mid career or late career but somebody who hasn't actually started their career that way and this group of women while they have a a shared common identity that shared identity may be overwhelmed by the diversity of the individuals within that group and that's always a risk in these sort of things is that we paint with a broad brush and say women and women physicians, you know, as opposed to the individuals within the group. The program appears to be quite successful in the short term, what they talked about in the paper in generating engagement and developing career skills. But we really lack long-term data to know how this will have an impact or if it will have an
4: impact. Yeah. I'm really glad you picked this paper, Ken. I thought it was a great idea to create communities of physicians facing similar challenges. It kind of reminds me when we talk about all the fancy ways to like reduce antibiotic prescriptions, when the bottom line is just like prescribe less antibiotics. And in this case, it's like if there's a pay gap, how about leadership just finds the pay gaps in their system and fix them? And then we don't need like fancy consortiums to talk about how we need to have better negotiation skills. So we definitely need more consortiums, physicians need to support each other. But to me, it seems like there's a more direct way to fix the pay gaps. Bottom line.
2: Gender inequity exists in the House of Medicine, and this study represents one group of women's attempt to find and implement solutions to this important problem.
4: Paper 10. Abstract number 10, organized HPV-based cervical cancer screening a randomized healthcare policy trial in PLOS Med, August 2021. So this study is designed to assess the real-life implementation of HPV-only strategy cervical cancer screening compared to cytology in women aged 30 to 64. And just to rehash the USPSTF recommendations, women 21 to 29 recommend cytology alone every three years, women 30 to 65 cytology alone every three years, or high-risk HPV testing alone every five years, or co-testing every five years. And this is under review by the USPSTF, so we may see a change in this again soon. So these authors invited almost 400,000 women aged 30 to 64 in the capital region of Sweden for cervical cancer screening. They followed them for three to five years, They randomized them to HPV first with follow-up cytology or cytology first with follow-up HPV. Biopsy was performed for abnormal cytology results or positive HPV results. And the main outcome measure was non-inferior detection of CIN2 or worse. Secondary outcomes were superiority of CIN2 or worse detection, screening attendance, and referral to histology about half the women here came in for testing. So 400,000 were invited, about half that many came in. So the results, you'll be pleased to know, was a per-protocol analysis, which Ken has taught us for non-inferiority trials, that's a better thing to look at. And so for their primary outcome detection rate of CIN2 or worse, they were equal. The HPV arm and the cytology arm, about 1%. Cervical cancer detection was the same in both groups, about 0.04 and 0.05%. The HPV only had a slightly higher rate of referral for colposcopy, so the authors concluded that primary HPV-based screening was acceptable and effective when compared to cytology-based screenings as indicated by comparable participation, referral, and detection rates. So I have a general
2: question and that is, is every person in Sweden involved in at least one of these studies because my gosh the whole population you know they've got this captured population with the socialized healthcare system this small geographic area and the number of studies that come out of sweden that they have these longitudinal studies everybody seemed to enroll i mean they must be sitting at the cafes going hey what study are you doing i don't know what study are you doing they're all enrolled in all these studies so, it's all of scandinavia um, yeah. yeah anyways um yeah, it really seemed to work. And uh, I did like the fact that they did the per-protocol analysis for a non-inferiority study. And I think having an EBM discussion that involves, you know, the literature that we have on this, clinical experts, and asking women, you know, what would they prefer? Would they, would they prefer the traditional? Would they prefer getting the HPV screening? And then looking at how you're going to implement or change your screening program based on all these, all three of these pillars of evidence-based medicine.
7: Bottom
4: line. HPV-based screening is acceptable and effective in women age 30 to 64.
2: Well, there you go. That wraps up the May 2022 episode of PCMA. You may or may not have liked it, so all those people here who are upset that I talked about acupuncture again, dad jokes, attempted to sing at one point, an 80s song. Oh my goodness, what else, what else did I do in here, Steve? I mean, really, you know, my DMs are open. Send me your messages, happy to respond. Um, you know, we want to have this conversation with you. We don't think we have all the answers. We're just reading the literature and trying to interpret it with our clinical judgment. So we know that there's a wealth of knowledge out there and we can put it out to the cloud of primary care docs and say, hey, what do you think? We'd love to have that feedback and comments from you. Yeah, thanks
4: a lot, Ken, and we'll talk to you all later. I think I can sum this all up.
7: Summary.
1: The summary. And we're kicking off with PCMA as usual, and I'm starting with paper number one. PCMA. Article 1. Management and Outcomes of Adults Diagnosed with Acute Pulmonary Embolism in Primary Care, Community-Based Retrospective Cohort Study, General or General Internal Medicine. This study of just over 600 low-risk patients with PE was looking to see whether inpatient or outpatient initial management led to decreased serious adverse events at 30 days. The paper highlighted some useful risk stratification scores and also showed that there is no high-quality evidence saying that inpatient management of low-risk PE patients is the way to go.
0: Paper number two, Effect on sacubitril valsartan versus Standard Medical Therapies on Plasma and T-ProBNP Concentration and Submaximal Exercise Capacity in Patients with Heart Failure and Preserved Ejection Fraction, the Parallax Randomized Clinical Trial in JAMA 2021. This wins the prize for the longest title in a while. You know, the title does bias me to see this paper in a certain way, but I'll try to be objective in my summary. You and I both know, Vanessa, that if there's been a change in heart function management in the past five years, it really has to be the preference of sacubitril valsartan over either an ARB or ACE monotherapy in patients who have a reduced ejection fraction. Of course, reduced ejection fraction is not the only type of heart failure, so this study wanted to see if this medication combination the Susibitril-slash-Valsartan, is helpful in patients with preserved ejection fraction. And if you decide to disregard the drug company-related conflicts of interest, the strawman comparators, and the surrogate endpoints that give us a teeny tiny change in proBNP levels at 12 weeks, then... Maybe, maybe you'll consider prescribing this medication for your patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Yes, cue the sarcasm.
1: Paper number three, Study of Mirtazapine for Agitated Behaviors in Dementia, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in the Lancet 2021. This was a British study of approximately 200 patients with presumed Alzheimer's dementia, Looking at whether or not the use of, frankly, high-dose mirtazapine helped reduce symptoms of agitation in these patients. Unfortunately, mirtazapine came up short and does not seem to have made a significant difference in this patient population. Vanessa, I can't remember
0: the last time I saw an elderly patient on forty-five milligrams of mirtazapine. Yeah, no, that's not something I'm going to be trying out. Paper four: Effective Screen Time on Recovery from Concussion: A Randomized Clinical Trial in JAMA Pediatrics, 2021. This small study compared early screen use to delayed screen use in post-concussive patients. Those who delayed screen use to at least 48 hours post-head injury were symptom-free much more quickly, at 3.5 versus
1: 8 days. Bottom line here, don't use screens for 48 hours after concussion. Paper number five. Effects of combined varenicline with nicotine patch and of extended treatment duration on smoking cessation, a randomized clinical trial, JAMA 2021. This paper was looking at the question of how to improve tobacco cessation and abstinence. They tried adding a nicotine patch to varenicline therapy, as well as extending the duration of varenicline therapy to six months, but neither of these made much difference to cessation and abstinence rates at one year. Paper 6, Topical Preparations for the Treatment of Mild to
0: Moderate Acne Vulgaris, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis in the British Journal of Dermatology in September 2021. You and I discussed acne in our January intro this year, and this paper is a nice follow-up to that discussion. There are so many different topical treatment options for mild to moderate acne, and this meta-analysis looks at these products in isolation or in combination. So the take-home points are combination therapy is better than monotherapy, and if you were to choose, benzoyl peroxide and adapalene, which is a retinoid, had the best number needed to treat at 5.
1: Paper number 7, Efficacy of Acupuncture for Chronic Prostatitis and Chronic Pelvic Pain Syndrome, a Randomized Trial, in the Annals of Internal Medicine 2021. This study of 400 or so patients compared acupuncture to sham acupuncture for the treatment of chronic pelvic pain and chronic prostatitis. Now, given that this paper was put forward by Ken, And given that we all know his views on acupuncture, I'm not sure anyone will be shocked to hear that this paper didn't really do much to convince him that acupuncture was an effective modality here. Perhaps read it for yourselves to see if you are convinced, but I think I'm probably with Ken here as well.
0: Paper 8, Accuracy of Signs, Symptoms, and Hematologic Parameters for the Diagnosis of Infectious Mononucleosis. A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis in the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine 2021. While it's still useful for us to know the clinical signs and symptoms of mononucleosis, as it is with any disease, this study shows that an elevated lymphocyte count is more accurate at cinching the diagnosis. So yes, go ahead and look for that lymphadenopathy and the petechiae on the palate, but don't hesitate to get that CBC. And of course, to confirm your diagnosis with the heterophile antibody test or the viral capsid antigen test if it's available to you.
1: Paper number 9, Addressing Gender Inequities, Creation of a Multi-Institutional Consortium of Women Physicians in Academic Emergency Medicine, in the Annals of Emergency Medicine 2021. Even before we get to the conclusions here, I was just excited that there is a paper that does more than merely point out the issue of gender inequity in medicine, because I am so tired of this coming as a shock to people. So this paper looked at outcomes after a group of female ER docs at Harvard created a group whose purpose was to help other female ER docs with career advancement. While also addressing broader issues of gender inequity, the initial results from short term follow up seem promising for sure, but we will need more information about the longer term impacts. Paper 10 Organized Primary Human
0: Papillomavirus Based Cervical Screening, a Randomized Healthcare Policy Trial in PLOS Med 2021. And each time we review an article on HPV-based cervical cancer screening, I get excited that one day, patients everywhere may not need to have routine pap tests. This study compared HPV-based screening with cytology-based screening, and found that the former was better at detecting CIN2+, had similar rates with cervical cancer detection, and resulted in slightly more referrals to colposcopy. So let's make sure we update the next set of guidelines to make HPV-based screening first line across the board.
1: So that was PCMA, and now for the rest of this month's show, let's see, what did we cover?
4: It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee.
1: Well, Hobie and I
0: chatted about something that can be, frankly, very upsetting and difficult to navigate. Namely, how do we go about divorcing patients? How do we go about letting a patient go from our patient roster? We went over some of the different issues to consider and ways to go about this in a manner that is respectful, considerate, and legal.
1: The Generalist. And then on The Generalist, Casey Parker came back with his ultrasound machine and gave us some great tips and tricks for using POCUS in the family medicine office in order to diagnose gallstones. For those of us who use POCUS in the emergency room, these pieces are a great reminder that we can bring these skills into the office and maybe perhaps we'll inspire some newcomers to poke us
7: along the way. Oral contraceptive pills.
0: Then Penny Wilson joined us to talk about oral contraceptive pills. There are so many out there to choose from. Each has their own unique properties, but there are some overarching themes that we need to be aware of when prescribing them for a patient. So, if you haven't had a listen already, go back and listen because there's lots of great pearls there.
2: Rural Medicine Talks.
1: And this month on Rural Medicine, I'm going through the story of a patient with a suspected globe rupture. And it's not anything too earth shattering, but just going through the different steps that you need to remember when caring for this sort of patient. So that wraps it up for May 2022, right on Prime. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you will come back next month for another serving of educational goodness.
0: In the meantime, keep doing what you do
1: because what you do matters.